You're listening to the Your Queer Story podcast, the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism, led by your favorite hosts, Evan Jones and Paul Hobbs. Trigger warning. Our content covers centuries of LGBTQ plus stories, and occasionally we may use outdated language or cover topics that include violence, assault, homophobia, transphobia, as well as other injustices against marginalized communities. Make sure you subscribe and review wherever you are listening, and be sure to follow us on all social media at Your Queer Story. And if you want exclusive content, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. You're here, now let's get queer. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Your Queer Story. We are the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism. And we're your host. I'm Evan Jones. And I'm Paul Hobbs. And this week we're talking about uh, Barbara Smith. Barbara Smith. before we dive in, you've got about another 12 minutes of commentary. <laughs> you got to <laughs> hang in there. Yeah, it's always good. If you don't hate the, the beginning commentary, then, you know, just go ahead and click to 10 minutes ahead because... It's always at least 10 minutes. At least. Just hit that little 10. And if you love the commentary, then you should subscribe to our Patreon so that you can hear Behind the Queens, which is our Patreon-exclusive content where we just talk out our ass about whatever we want. 15 minutes. Yeah. Straight conversation. We always try to pick a topic, but it never sticks to that topic. (laughs) No, all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? It's 15 extra minutes of content every single week. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's personal stories it helps our podcast um which then you know we can use to help the queer community evan's currently putting in an application to have a booth at the transgender um, Uh, convention the the trans philly conference and i'm I'm petitioning to do a workshop there yes so there you go so if you go to the trans philly conference i have not got it yet um i I have no idea if i'm gonna get it but if i do get selected to do a workshop then uh i will let you guys know and if you go there um, check it out. It's a free conference, but obviously you have to find accommodations while you're in Philly. But if you can get there, the conference is free and mm-hmm. it's the biggest trans conference in North America. So there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And wherever you're listening, please make sure you give us a little like a subscribe uh, and a subscribe mm-hmm. and um, leave us a review. If you're listening yeah. on Spotify, I know Spotify doesn't have reviews. You can tweet us a review. You can go on iTunes and leave a review. Um, Stitcher has reviews. Yep. If you want to go out of your way, it'll help us a lot. Um, likes, reviews, and things like that help the you know all of those behind the scene algorithms when they decide which podcast to show up on the list. So every yeah. little bit helps. That helps boost us, and of course, downloading always helps mm-hmm. as well. So downloading wherever you go, um, and make sure we know we've been pushing this hard but honestly our new merch store is amazing because paul has put so many things on there there's so many items from stickers and notebooks to hoodies and t-shirts and and coffee mugs everything that you can think of yep and um these items regularly go on sale so before we could only offer t-shirts for like 25 dollars but on this new site when things go on sale, you can get stickers for like thir- uh, shirts for like thirteen dollars. Mm-hmm. We have stickers for two dollars. Yep. We have yeah. I bought I a sticker. Make- <laughs> go, go ahead. 
No, I bought I bought a sticker because I was like I you know like you can put the sticker on like your laptop or something if you're one of those people that loves to cover your laptop or your water bottle you can buy one of these cute, these cheap little stickers I got one to put on a notebook but you can also buy a notebook yeah um, and keep it keep an eye out around Pride season because I am adding like yeah. some generic Pride merch so mm-hmm. if you don't want to represent the podcast but you want a cute shirt you know just- yeah you can do that and and when he says that it goes on sale regularly we're talking like a couple times a month mm-hmm. every month this goes on For sale. Like a week long. Yeah, big big drops. And then like the first time that you use the website, there's also a sale. 15% off. So so there's a lot for you guys, um, you know, anytime you want to go on there. Um, but yeah, and you have your new Suckling Saphis. Yes, that merch. one's really cute. Very femme but, and very, very cute. Mm-hmm. I like it. So if you're a proud Suckling Saphis. My little sister wanted it because she thought it was so cute. Yeah, <laughs> that's sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, and of course... If you want exclusive behind the scenes content like our Behind the Queens or if you want my coffee with Evan, which just made a new video. Um, huh? We already talked about this. We didn't talk about – we talked about um, – the very beginning we talked about how we have Behind the Queens, but we didn't talk about subscribing <laughs> to our Patreon. Yes, we did. For as low as $3 a month. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. You know what? You guys do what you want. So, so what did you do this week, Evan? Let me tell you about my week. All right. Yes, now, you said you had this great story for me, so yes. I am all ears. Now, um, so I went to a movie with my friend. I have a good friend of mine, and um, and we went to this movie together, and they had texted me, and they're like, um, you know, do you want to go see this movie? They're like, do you want to go see The Boy? And I'm like, oh, Bad Boys? Like, whatever, 15, whatever it is now. And I was like, yeah, sure, Bad Boys is great. So we get to the movie, and we get, we're get we sitting down, and they're Wait, showing... The called The Boy. Sh- the, they're showing these previews, and I'm like... And it's like one horror preview after another. And I'm starting to be like, this is odd. Like, why would they be showing all these horror previews when we're watching an action movie? And then all of a sudden, it's like that... There was this moment of sheer panic, and I, I looked over at my friend, and I was like, Andy, what movie are we watching? And they go, The Boy. And I was like, no, like, Bad Boys? And they're like, no, The Boy? And Andy knows I hate horror movies, knows that I hate them with a passion. And I, like, look it up, and of course, it's about this haunted fucking doll. It's The Boy 2, which I, I guess that's why I thought he, they said Bad Boys 2. I thought it was just a typo in the message. And they're like, you said you wanted to go see The Boy. And I was like, why would I want to see this? You know I hate horror. You know. So then for the next two hours, I had to sit curled up in my chair with my hands in my ears and my eyes half closed. You did not. Yes, I did. Watching this demon fucking doll. Doll, hot I'm so boy. upset. You have never watched a horror movie with me, but you watched a horror movie. I, I feel like was you, tricked. I feel like you cheated on me. No, this is a new level of the, Trust me, if the tickets were not already bought and we were not about to watch the movie, there is no way in hell I would have watched this fucking thing. No way in hell. I feel cheated on. I didn't you know there was a movie a called movie The Boy. I don't want to... Paul, it was traumatic. <laughs> I Now I'm constantly turning around looking to see if there's a doll somewhere <laughs> that's going to haunt me for no fucking reason. Oh. oh, it was very so. It was very hard. So that was my week. Anyways, that one event with your whole week that was triggering. Is <laughs> that? Um, let's see. So yesterday was the premiere of RuPaul's Drag Race season twelve. Mm-hmm. So we went to Mirror Bar to watch that, and that was great. But then we found out that their kitchen's not open on Fridays. Well, you know what that means? No food. You can't get fucking grilled cheese. They have 50-cent grilled cheese there, and it is so good. Oh. And we would go on Thursdays, and we would watch Drag Race, and we would each get, like, three grilled cheese. That was, like, the thing. Wait, so now so, so Drag Race is going to be on Fridays now? Yeah. 
Oh, well, they're going to have to open their kitchen. Exactly. I'm like, yeah. um, hello, I came here for the grilled cheese. I could have watched this at home if I didn't want the grilled cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's. Um, but then we went to this place called Zacco's Tacos and they we had great tacos, but then they ordered like a plate of crickets, like the bugs. Uh huh. And they're like, who is they? Um, Naoki. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You just didn't want to name it. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're like, um, crickets, and then I guess they're like, they go on the tacos. They're like, it's just dr- crunchy. Yeah, they're yeah. like fried, or I don't know how they're made, but I was yeah. like, I can, they like were trying to get me to eat one, and I was like, I cannot. <laughs> and they like were like, eat one. I, I didn't do it. No. Because I just, in my head, could imagine when you step on a grasshopper, how like guts and how squishy no, it is. No, it's not. I know, but where does all that go? It fucking cooks into it. No thanks. It evaporates into it. It's like, I, no, that's no. disgusting. <laughs> I would never in a million years eat a fucking bug. And I've I know crickets. that that's like some cultures, like everybody does that. Like, yeah, I get that. Maybe if I, I'm sure if I grew up around that culture, I would be fine with that. It was traumatic but not for you that yeah. was like equally as traumatic to me as that was for you i felt like i when i ate crickets i felt like i was eating sunflower seeds like if that's you didn't what they were this, saying yeah. they were like it's like literally sunflower seeds and i was yeah. like nope nope, nope 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 can't do it yeah there we go i guess we both just had a real rough week um <laughs> i actually did a lot of stuff this week so i actually did start taking some anxiety medicine and let mm-hmm. me tell you it has been literally life-changing yeah I because I now notice how much anxiety I had all the time, and it also didn't doesn't help the fact that I also will listen to like five hours of true crime a day at work, <laughs> like listening yeah. to people like these horrible stories of people murdered. Like I'm sure that also leads to it because now I can feel when anxiety is coming on, and yeah. I'm like, okay, so let's see, why did I have so many anxiety problems? One, mm-hmm. I needed anxiety medication. Yeah. Two, I listened to so much true crime. But three, I was also drinking like eight cups of coffee a day. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I don't know why I have so much anxiety all the time. <laughs> I can't get it. What? what? I take four shots of espresso before I leave the house. <laughs> then I drink a coffee at work. And then two hours later, I have another coffee. Why do I have so much anxiety? It's bizarre, really. It's crazy how when one thing goes down, you can like realize the other factors in your life that are contributing to an issue. Yeah, yeah, I because, agree. Because of that, I was like, okay, so this is what it feels like to not be anxious. And then, like, I realized other things that were making me. It was just, like, literally life-changing. Yeah. No, I agree. Everybody should go to therapy. <laughs> yes. I, I've been saying that for years. But, yes, everybody should go to therapy 100%. I don't care what it is, whether it's a support group, whether it's a counselor, if it's a licensed therapist, depending on what your your past is. But, yeah, you should. Um me, I have a set schedule now, and that has been life-changing for me. When I first, I agree, because yeah. if you've never, I mean, maybe in high school, if you worked retail, you probably think about it today, and you're like, oh, that was, or, you know, a shift job, you know, through yeah. your college or whatever, today, if it's years later, you're probably like, oh, that wasn't so bad, but it is horrible. Oh, my God, it's awful. Because when I switched to a nine-to-five, my life changed, like, I was like, oh, so I just automatically know when I work and when I actually get off. Like, it's not different every week and I don't have to plan my entire fucking existence around the needs of this company. And there's not this constant stress that you're going to have plans and then you're going to have to cancel your plans mm-hmm. because something else is get, at work is going to come up. Yeah, I, I mean, I get up between five and six every day. I can, I've been able to go to the gym. I've been able to um, do my morning reading and meditation every single day. Like... Uh, everything is so much better. I mean, and I love my job. Absolutely love it. It's amazing. But also just like knowing I can go home and leave work at work. And then you don't have to think about it. You're like literally gone. And then when I'm at work, I'm able to 
to focus on work because I'm not trying to do all the things that I like. It was like this constant cycle where like I was at work and I was trying to do my personal stuff because I didn't have time in my personal time because I had to work. And it's this vicious cycle. Like I don't understand. I can no longer understand how a company thinks that that's beneficial to them themselves as a company. How does that help your organization when you never give your people time off? Mm -hmm. You never give them space. You never let them have, you know, like time for themselves. You just shoot yourself in the foot. You drain their productivity. By the end of my retail career, I would sit in the office because, well, one, I knew I was done. Yeah. Like I knew I was done, but I would sit in the office for like an hour, you know, two, three hours doing shit that I had to do. Yeah. Because when else was I going to fucking do it? Because when I was going to do it last night, I had to work a fucking double because... So-and-so called off. Yeah. So you tell me when I'm supposed to get this shit done. Exactly. My productivity, my last six to eight months tanked. And when I say my productivity, I mean like my store that I manage, our numbers fell. That company hurt itself Mm -hmm. because they couldn't just give me the time that I needed to recuperate. So you lost sales because you couldn't give me the time that I needed. And then the manager too. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then you had you had to pay all that money and time into hiring and training a new person when you could have just given a person a fucking day off. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, whatever. We're good. We're better now. (laughs) Yeah, we're so much better. So So fuck the corporations. Get out of there. You're not. If you're. Oh God. Get out now. If you can, yeah. If you can get out, get out now. And especially because over the next ten years, how many retail stores are going to be left? Oh yeah, no. Walmart. And, and they're just the going to keep declining in their yeah. treatment of people. They, yeah. they, this is just shareholders trying to make a trying to make a buck on you. I promise. Let retail die. It is not worth it. These are um, probably uh, like a hundred to maybe five hundred very rich people that are going to drive thousands of people, millions into the ground, so that they can make some more money. Fuck retail. Yeah. Buy it all online. I know that people are like, I'm going to lose my job. Like you, there will be other jobs. You, it is not worth you living in poverty and starving because of this. You know, because of these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, but obviously, I know that there's people that are like I need to work my job right now, and you do. But if you can, if you can start We've working both, or thinking towards I, another career, Evan and I were both in that situation. Yeah. Of, I have no other skill set. I'm stuck. Yeah. I can't do anything. And I tell you that if you put, if you dedicate yourself to teaching yourself something, especially in the tech industry, which is what I did, mm-hmm. you can get out. Yeah. You just have to push forward. Yeah, you do. It, it's it's a really hard right now, but I would really start planning like another, another career because this one's going down and they're going to drain every last drop of blood mm-hmm. that they can on their way down. Eat the rich. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so. So now, and I want to say, sorry we had to miss last week. It was just too much going on, adjusting to the new job. But Barbara Smith was going to be our last person during Black History Month. And it's amazing because she fits perfectly into Women's History Month, which is when this uh, episode airs at the beginning of Women's so History Month. So that was some perfect timing. I mean, I don't want to say that I'm good at my job, but I'm pretty good <laughs> at my job. <laughs> So I'll let you start this one off. Thank you. So today we address a feminist icon, civil rights legend, and queer revolutionary Barbara Smith. She's 73 years old today, but age has hardly slowed her down, as she is still actively sought after by people from all walks of life. All walks of life. Okay. Smith's 50-plus years of social justice advocacy makes her one of the most knowledgeable and qualified civil rights leader in the world. An incredible feat for anyone, but especially a black lesbian born in the middle of the Jim Crow era. How did she manage to become the fierce leader she is today? Well, let's start back at the beginning. On a chilly winter evening just a few weeks before Christmas, twin girls were born on December 16, 1946. 
Barbara and Beverly Smith were born to a struggling young couple who had eloped and run away to Ohio, seeking to outrun the extreme racism of their home in Georgia. But the twins' father, Gartrell, was rejected by his wife, Hilda's family. Frustrated and overwhelmed, the young newlywed mother took her daughters alone back home to Georgia. For the next several years, she raised them with support from her family. Then, when the girls were just nine years old, Hilda Beale Smith contracted rheumatic fever and died a few weeks later. The sisters were then sent to live with their grandmother in Cleveland, Ohio, where their father's family still resided. What happened to Gertrell Smith seems to be a bit of a mystery. It's really hard because, like I said, they were a young couple. They eloped. They run away to Ohio, where his family is. Mm -hmm. But her family was always really resentful, Hilda's family. And so then she takes her daughters and goes back to Georgia. Then she dies, and the girls are moved back up to Ohio. It's back and forth. But Gertrell doesn't really ever seem to be much a part of the girls' lives. So Yeah, he was just like... I, yeah, yeah. I don't. We don't really know. I don't know like, if he just wasn't ready to be a father, or if then he wasn't I mean, a good their, person. Their like, I don't know. Is, their story is my story. Like, yeah. I mean, so many people grow up like this. Yeah, exactly. So we do know that he was in the armed services, and perhaps that he was stationed overseas and never came home. Whatever the reason, it was Barbara and Beverly's grandmother and aunts who raised them, and this influence would play a profound impact on their lives. The young girls saw how their aunts were treated badly by white business owners because they were black, or how their grandmother was ignored by men because she was a woman. Barbara would write later in life in her book, Home Girls, a Black Feminist Anthology, the cold eyes of certain white teachers, the black men who yelled from the cars as Beverly and I stood waiting for the bus convinced me that I had done something horrible. So this is just talking about how she, they, like, they had these strong women um, raising them, but they still saw the racism and sexism that was pushed mm-hmm. against them. Yeah, they're always just like, What's, what did I do wrong? Exactly. Just, everybody's yeah. just targeting them. Right, yeah, you've got to wonder. Like, Especially as a existing. child, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. You don't understand, you know? You're just like, why are all these people hate me? Yeah. So throughout her adolescence, Barbara would struggle with feeling ugly and unwanted. She pointed out how there was no one who faintly looked like me being looked at as a beautiful person. The lack of representation was only one of the many issues black Americans faced during this time. But it shows the incredibly deep impression this leaves on a child of color who only sees themselves portrayed as grotesque or broken or strange. And the local and daily interactions did not help. Barbara once had to dispute a French teacher who believed the young teen had no place in her summer French course. This assumption was based solely on Barbara's race, as the teacher completely disregarded her high grades and excellent school record. Yeah, and again, like we talk all the time about how representation matters, and it does. Like mm-hmm. when, if you're a young child of color and you never see a person that's seen as beautiful, right? Like even little things like the sexiest man alive. If for years, the sexiest man alive was only a white guy. Like how does a person of color supposed to ever believe that we're attractive? Mm -hmm. Or on the other hand, when you're only ever sexualized and you're only ever seen as a sex object and not seen as a, a full person, right? you know, So regardless of the many obstacles, Barbara's excelled in her studies. And when she wasn't acing her courses, she and her twin were protesting racial injustice. By their junior and senior year of high school, the two regularly participated in desegregation rallies and became active in the civil rights scene. They also joined CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, an organization that was creating quite an upheaval in the Jim Crow South of the early 60s. Just three years before the teens joined the movement, CORE had straight 
Corps had staged Freedom Summer, a campaign based in Mississippi which accomplished such tasks as registering over 80,000 black Mississippians to vote and creating 30 freedom schools for black children in the state. You know who made a recent comment about the 60s? Oh, what was that? Buttigieg. Yeah. He was like, do we really want to go towards the era of the 1960s? Yeah. When everybody was having so many racial and... Uh, minority quality, like, you know what I mean? The I'm radical like, 1960s. You, yeah, I'm like, uh, those were kind of like a really big deal. Why would, how can you? Yeah, you mean like, like 1969 when you started to get your rights, you fuck, like that kind of shit. Like he's constantly like Completely appealing. unaware. Exactly. Completely he, unaware. He only knows how to appeal to a white middle class and white rich base. He only knows how to because he, to him, that's so radical. Like you couldn't marry your husband if it wasn't for the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So shut up, Buttigieg. The, see, this is why it's so hard to support him. <laughs> he just makes me so mad. And I know that I just like know that I'm going to be stuck with trying to be like, no, everybody vote for Pete because we got to have Pete in there over Trump. And it's going to be really hard for me. <laughs> You're going to be like, burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> and while all of this exciting news was inspiring, it was always weighed with the gravity of violence that followed the ca- campaign. That summer alone, 80 activists were beaten by mobs or the police, and 67 homes and churches were firebombed. Two years later, right around the time that Barbara and Beverly were joining up, three core members were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. It would be 41 years before any justice was served and only one of the men was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 60 years in prison. Yet the tides were slowly turning, and Barbara and her sister were insistent on being part of this historical movement. Yes, I. It must have been really exciting. Though. I mean, as uh, I can't imagine, like you obviously, there's also the racism is so extreme. But to be a young person and be part of that movement, I mean, I feel like right now we are part of a big movement. I think that this era is going to be looked back at as as like the 1960s were, where it's seen it's like such unrest, but also so much happened. Mm-hmm. So and and even as these young girls, it's like 15, 16, 17. They're standing there. They're listening to Martin Luther King Jr. give his right. speech. They're like they're protesting. They're doing the freedom rides where you, like you rode the buses and you insisted on sitting in the front. Like it's it, yeah. There's so much. Mm-hmm. As seniors in high school, they helped to desegregate Mount Holyoke College, and after graduation, Barbara attended the college for a brief period, but blatant racism was difficult. So in the fall, she transferred to the New School University in New York City. I don't know for sure because I couldn't get the information, but I think she um, attended Mount Holyoke at first just to help with the desegregation, mm-hmm. but it was, but obviously it was really tense, right. and she's like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, New School was a college that had been founded to encourage progressive values and mold the new and bold thinkers. There she studied social sciences for the next three years and returned to Mount Holyoke to complete her degree. While the New School was the place Barbara wanted to be, no doubt she realized that a diploma from Mount Holyoke would carry more weight. Yeah. um, Yeah, it wasn't wasn't a very established place at the time, so, you know. Right. Um, She then used the degree to gain entrance into the University of Massachusetts, where she earned her master's. And upon graduation, Barbara was hired on staff. One of her biggest frustrations was the lack of academic material about black literature. I guess that's something I never really thought about. Yeah. Like, trying to study back then, I can only imagine, like, that's not ever something that was probably ever, like, promoted in schools. Oh, no. So I'm like, like, especially without the internet, how do you get it? 
Does the, is the library even guaranteed to have it at that point in time? Like probably not. You probably could only go to libraries in like black towns, mm-hmm. or you know, when I say black towns, like areas where oh, there was only black people, where segregation had pushed right. people, or you had to really search and fight for it. And like you said, it's not taught. So you're listening to all these like amazing. You get to read books and books of white writers, mm-hmm. and that's that clouds your perspective. That's why people today will still only think of great literacy in the terms of white writers because right. that's how you're taught exactly yeah it's i some again something else like white privilege you just don't know you just yeah you don't know you don't think about it right um so barbara designed her own course one of the earliest of its kind taught in mainstream universities and along with her educational success throughout her college experience barbara also continued her activism But she was frustrated with the sexism within the civil rights movement. Along her journey, Barbara had learned a lot about single-issue activism and realized it didn't serve her full identity. So while attending Mount Holyoke, Barbara described the place as having lesbian undercurrents that nobody talked about. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) That sounds like life. (laughs) (laughs) It's just walking down the street, there's lesbian undercurrents. I'm just feeling a lot of lesbian undercurrents right now. But you know what? I've feel like there's a lot of gay undercurrents too because oh yeah i've like i don't know why but as i'm getting older i just notice more and more things about straight men just how they interact and i'm like did you suck each other's dick because i'm pretty sure you two did <laughs> yeah, you like it's did. just like you can just i don't know uh, because i'm a, because it's what we've been saying since day one it's- it, it really is but the it's just the way that i don't know if it's like this in all countries but that but the just way that men in the United States act straight men, it's just like they just put on this it's this weird culture. Uh-huh. I just don't understand it. That's why I can't I can't interact with straight people <laughs> with straight men. I just don't get them. Because it's it's just such a macho persona, but you're right. Then they'll go It's and- it's literally like being a drag queen, but like to be manly. Yeah. It's always an act. What like was just that, be yourself. What was that thing that people were calling? It was like a, a year or two ago. There was this thing. Um, it's fuck buddies, but it was for bo- for like straight men. It was oh, like um, bro or fuck bro or something like that. But it was basically remember. where they're like straight guys that have sex with men. And you're like, there are straight guys that have sex with each other. And you're like, I mean, I don't care so much about the labels, but like, why are we calling this straight guys that have sex with each other? I mean, mm-hmm. like, I don't bromance? think that's no, not bro- it wasn't bromance, but it was something like that. Yeah, I, I just but I'm like, but, but like, but you're a straight guy and you you have sex with a guy. Why? Why can't you just admit that you like having sex with guys? Mm-hmm. It's just the I, I can't I literally have a hard time interacting with straight men because I'm like there. You don't all they all share the same personality but they don't like it's all an act i think that a lot of guys are changing that i think that there are a lot of straight guys that are changing but i also think that a lot of guy the the so-called straight guys that are changing things are also a lot more fluid than they are so that's again that goes back to this 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 label there's like Mm -hmm. if i identify as pansexual then people are gonna be like oh you're just one of those queers but Mm -hmm. if i identify as a straight guy that likes to have sex with guys then i can kind of change the narrative but then like yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. But I do know what you're saying. Like, there is this the very macho, like we call it, toxic it's masculinity. Act. It's all an act. It's I all an it's act. All an because act. you're talking about how fucking tough you are, but you're right. You're going in the locker room and you're sucking each other's dicks. So then what is the fucking problem? Mm-hmm. What's happening? Mm-hmm. And we're the crazy ones. I know. That's I just that's exactly. And when I flip the narrative like that, I'm like, 
How did I not see this my entire <laughs> yeah, life? Yeah, you're gaslighting us into believing that we're the ones that don't know what's going on, but we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. We're naming it. You're not. Right. Exactly. Lesbian undercurrents. <laughs> <laughs> I just walk into a place and be like, there's a, some lesbian undercurrents and I'm not having it. Oh, that would be a good shirt. Lesbian undercurrents. <laughs> I was thinking. <laughs> okay. So whether she, Barbara, first explored her sexuality during this time or not, it no doubt opened her eyes to the possibilities of living openly. And somewhere around the mid-1970s, Barbara came out as a lesbian and became more involved in the black lesbian feminist movement. Um, I'm assuming she's done this on purpose, but there is like almost no information about Barbara's personal life. So like we know that she came out, but like when she came out, who she dated, who she's with, no idea. You know what though? That's kind of like part of... I don't want to say star quality, uh-huh. but like by removing all of that personal stuff, she can make sure that all of the focus is only on her activism yeah. and like nothing else. Exactly. It's like, don't, I don't care. You don't need to fucking know that. Mm. You need to know what we need to fucking fix. Yeah. yeah and, and, and respect that. Yeah. So um, her identity was especially radical even within the civil rights movement. Smith addressed the issue of male chauvinism in her interview with the Making History, Making Gay History podcast. And she stated... There's an extreme amount, it seems to me, of male chauvinism in certain black contexts, which is a direct result of racism and the deficit of never being able to lead or have freedom in a racist country. So, to make up for white supremacy in certain black political contexts, the black men are even more more chauvinistic, because they're really going to show who is boss, because they are so rightfully angry about not being recognized as capable and full human beings, in the context where white men get to call the shots. Being a lesbian feminist, as I was at that period, was about sticking holes in every terrorist value and belief. That makes perfect sense. Right, yeah. You take away a person's control, so then they... It's like kind of like the thing with my... my, um, um, like you take away their control so they exert dominance in another area, or even harder to, tr- to prove that they do mm-hmm. have control and they do have power. Right. Um, what Barbara experienced was the clash in her intersecting identities. On the one hand, she wanted to fight for her rights as a black American, <clears throat> yet often found the right of her gender and orientation ignored. Consequently, within the feminist movement, she often faced racism and homophobia. These issues pushed the young black activists to incorporate an all-encompassing approach to social justice. This is exactly why queer people of color have led the way in our country's civil rights revolution. It is precisely because of their intersecting oppressions that they are able to see the many sides of the coins. Whereas this, whereas single-issue activism may yield a quicker and more resounding result, multi-issue activism yields more substantial and longer-lasting results. This is why Smith, to this day, continues to avoid organizations and communities that shut out other oppressed peoples. Right. But it's like, but it, that's we see that again and again, and that is why when we say queer people or queer people of color who lead the revolution and folks are like, well, what about this person? What about this white guy? What about this white girl? It's not saying that uh, white people weren't obviously involved, but they were, and we're going to talk about it. They were involved only for their, right. their, what they needed, their issues. Mm-hmm. They weren't involved in, in creating an actual revolution, but queer people of color were in these intersecting identities where they're like, okay, well we have to address several things because right. if we don't, then we're really going to be screwed. Mm-hmm. So, but where then is a black lesbian feminist to go in the mid-1970s? Having no other resources, Barbara partnered with her sister Beverly and their friend Demita Frazier to found the Combahee River Collective. The name itself spoke to a powerful statement of black feminist power. On the night of June 1st, 1863, in the wee hours of the 2nd, into the wee hours of the 2nd, 
Harriet Tubman led 150 Union soldiers deep into Confederate territory. Using intelligence gathered from runaway slaves, Harriet and her command raided the coastline of the Combahee River, destroying plantations and estates while rescuing over 750 slaves. In the entire ordeal, only one person was killed and 100 of the newly freed men promptly joined the Union Army, making Harriet Tubman the only woman to have led a successful military campaign during the Civil War. I actually did not know that. Yeah? Is that incredible? One night she did that. She's like, they're like, all right, Harriet, I guess you can help out. And she's like, motherfuckers, watch me. I'm going to free well, 750 people. Because she knows. And yeah. not only does she know, she can, like, once she, she knows that once she, like, tells these people, like, let's do it now, like, they're going to immediately join her. Yeah. She had no uh, opposition, probably. Yeah. I mean, obviously the slave owners, but, like, she instantly... They instantly were like, okay, we're siding with this bitch, bye. So, like, <laughs> all of the slaves probably just turned on their, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. There's probably just this massive, like, boom. Well, that was a whole thing that was exactly why the slave owners were so afraid because they knew that they were far outnumbered by mm -hmm. their slaves. And if anybody started a revolt, like, they were going to be fucking screwed. Yep. And that's what Harriet did. She went in there and then they, and they did. And they burned those plantations, burned all their crops, and just like, fuck you, motherfuckers. I can't believe I never knew that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's just that thing. Like, I was talking about how it's just not taught, so we just don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I that's on me for not looking into it. Uh, I mean, like you said, we're not taught, you know. But that's why you read... Black authors, that's why mm -hmm. you read black history and, and Latino history and Asian history and Native American history. That's why you read other people's histories because you didn't. I just finished a book. Um, the the story was incredible, the, the book. I, I have mixed reviews, but it's on the Puebloan Revolt, and it's talking about the natives that were in southwest um, southwest of uh, uh, the United States and the Span and when the Spanish came over and that a period from about the 15 like 90s until the early 1700s and 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 how the natives fought back so hard against the Spanish and how the Spanish you know used their guns and their horses and mm -hmm. and their superior so-called firepower against them but it was but again stories that I never but there was this amazing revolt that happened where after 80 years of oppression the natives banded together and they pushed the Spanish out for 12 years a story that we would never be told wow. yeah. because if you don't read those histories you won't know those histories and then you won't have a balanced perspective on history mm -hmm. that's also why it needs to be taught in schools yep go ahead so it was with great pride that barbara smith and other black feminists chose the name combahee river collective as the title of their new organization it was radical and open to all describing itself as a class conscious sexuality affirming black feminist organization and while combahee was just what the movement needed it wasn't with many civil rights activists or feminists wanted in february of 1980 the meeting fi the final meeting would be held but not before barbara and her friends went out with a bang this resulted from barbara's 1977 piece toward a black feminist criticism and member shirlane mckay's powerful essay in 1979 i am a lesbian in both pieces the woman addressed the rainbow elephant in the room there were such things as black lesbians and they were just as involved in the fight for social justice as everyone else yeah, cause, and we talked about this a lot before, so you're kind of stuck in this thing where the civil rights movement doesn't want to admit that there's any gay people. Like, we don't have any black gay people, mm -hmm. right? That's where Bayard Rustin falls in. Yep. And the feminist movement 
wants to act like lesbians aren't crucial to them. Like fucking lesbians. I, I mean, do you I'm want not... somebody to come in and beat somebody's ass? Like, do you want <laughs> that... that group of people in no, here? But like lesbians, like formed the original suffragette movement. I'm not saying that straight women didn't play a huge part or even weren't even equal parts, but I'm just saying that like to say that lesbians have not been carrying the way on women's rights. It's, it's really mind blowing to me. Yeah. One day we're going to talk about but the, the thing suffragette is, movement. Once you, already, once you come in already having something, Mm-hmm. You don't need to think about the history. Well, exactly, right? It's your, pro- it's your. We're going to talk about that. It's your privilege. You're mm-hmm. like, I don't need to worry about this. Like, we're fighting for women's rights, and no, we're not, we're not going to fight for your right to be with women. But even as far back as the daughters of Belitis episode, we talked about how straight feminists were trying to push lesbians out. And you're so you're yep. you're a black woman. You're a black lesbian feminist, and you're like the civil rights movement doesn't want me because I'm a lesbian, and the feminist movement doesn't want me because I'm a lesbian. Well, fuck all you. Mm-hmm. I'll start my whole, my own thing. Yeah. In 1978, Smith was invited to speak on the first panel ever about black women writers. However, no other lesbians or even feminists were invited to speak. How do you talk about black women writers and not invite at least the feminist? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Mm-mm. So despite her despite her pleas to include more lesbians and feminists, Barbara read her essay and all hell broke loose. A prominent member of the group got up as soon as Barbara had finished and stated, I have sympathy for my sister, but homosexuality is the death of the race. In the back of the room, several of Barbara's friends watched helplessly as she was berated, insulted, and harassed by her fellow black writers. Among those watching was the esteemed author and proud lesbian warrior, Audre Lorde. Though the Combahee River Collective was closed down, Barbara was not through. In 1980, she, Lord, and several other women of color launched the kitchen table, Women of Color Press. While it was always a modestly small organization, its legacy as the first publisher for women of color was hugely impactful. Because of the kitchen table and breakthrough essays like Toward a Black Feminist Criticism and Homegirls, a Black Feminist Anthology, other authors such as famed Toni Morrison were able to have their work taken seriously. For the next 12 years, the woman at the kitchen table would produce and publish some of the most critical literature of the day. But in 1992, that chapter in Barbara's life closed when her friend Audrey passed away from cancer. Smith continued her fight for equal rights for all, while also providing deserved criticisms within her own movements when warranted. She had been protesting for LGBTQ rights since the late 70s and continued to do so, yet she was disappointed in the way the movement began to mirror early black civil rights activism. She wrote in a 1993 essay, when lesbians and gay men of color urged the gay leadership to make connections between heterosexism and issues like police brutality, racial violence, homelessness, reproductive freedom, and violence against women and children, the standard dismissive response is, those are not our issues. At a time when the gay movement is under unprecedented public scrutiny, lesbians and gay men of color and others committed to anti-racist organizing are asking, does the gay and lesbian movement want to create a just society for everyone, or does it only want to eradicate the last little glitch that makes life difficult for privileged white male queers? Sounds a lot like uh, what's going on today. Exactly. This is what, like 20, almost like 28 years ago, and you could have read it today and been like, same fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Come really on, could. guys. Come on. This is why we need a queer revolution <laughs> and not the gay rights movement. Oh, she continues on. The, the article continues on. <laughs> Go ahead. You read it. If the gay movement ultimately wants to make a real difference, as opposed to settling for handouts, it must consider creating a multi-issue revolutionary agenda. 
This is not about political correctness. It's about winning. As black lesbian poet and warrior Audre Lorde insisted, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Gay rights are not enough for me, and I doubt that they are enough for most of us. Frankly, I want the same thing now that I did 30 years ago when I joined the civil rights movement and 20 years ago when I joined the women's movement, came out and felt more alive than I ever dreamed possible. Freedom. Mm-hmm. What Barbara points out here is the foundational difference between the gay rights movement and the queer revolution. The two stemmed from the same circumstances, yet one evolved into a white-led, conservative-based, heteronormative structure, and the other was carried by black and brown people, heralded as a radical agenda, and defied the binaries of our social system. For most of the late 80s into the far into the 2000s, the two groups would not have been the more polar opposite, could not have been the more polar opposite. The white-based LGBT groups pled for tolerance as they ignored the needs of marginalized people in their own community, and queer revolutionaries threw up their hands in disgust as the gay rights movement became the white, lesbian, and gay movement. It wasn't until the late 2000s into the 2010s that major organizations began to experience a shift toward embracing outside the white binary realm. And while we could attribute this to the evolution of understanding and empathy, there is also the practical point of a concept known as inter- it's a crucial aspect of critical race theory, and we took the following definition of the concept from an NPR article by David Shee. Interest convergence is a theory coined by the late Derek Bell, law professor and spiritual grandfather to the field of study known as critical race theory. Interest convergence stipulates that black people achieved civil rights victories only when white and black interests converge. The signature example is Brown v. Board of Education, which happened because it advanced white interests too, Bell argued. Specifically, desegregation raised the nation's prestige in the world politics during the Cold War. Eventually, when interests diverged, the enforcement of civil rights was curtailed. Brown was undercut by later cases that sanctioned segregation for decades. Bull pointed to later affirmative action triumphs examples of renewed interest convergence. So um, we see this again and again where it seems like white people are just becoming enlightened and progressing, but in reality, they have an agenda. Yeah, and they're going to get something out of it. They're going to look good or exactly. something like, like that. Like whatever you need. And so and like a big, I think we talked about this a little bit in um, our, one of our previous episodes, but I don't know. But we talked about the Civil War, right? Like the Civil War was the, the North trying to free the poor, free, uh, the four, poor black slaves and the South was trying to oppress them. But in reality, the North... There were the North was comprised of a lot of very poor white farmers who could not compete against the plantation owners of the South. Also, the North was trying to um, create an industry where they could trade with Europe, but Europe was had outlawed slavery, and mm-hmm. Europe was having a problem with the way that America continued to allow slavery. So between the poor white farmers and America trying to establish relations with Europe overseas, they suddenly realized, hey, if we end slavery, we can better our relations all around. The poor white farmers can um, won't have to compete with the, the plantation owners, and we can uh, establish better trade connections with Europe, and so this works out better for us. So yeah. this was not, and, and we know that that's true because if it had been just about freeing black people, we would not have had Jim Crow Right after they were free. Right. Yeah, that's true. So for a moment, our interests converged. We or freed they black would people. have thought, you know, on top of freeing them, how are we going to integrate these people into society? Exactly. But it was never about that. In fact, we know that um, uh, Abraham Lincoln was incredibly racist. And um, and I mean, I mean everybody was racist. Mm-hmm. But the point is that, like, 
Um, so again, for a moment, the interests converged. So we ended slavery. And then when our interests parted, white people are like, okay, thank you. We don't need you anymore. You can go back to living on the other side of the tracks or whatever. You can continue in this Good luck new out form. There. Yeah, this new form of slavery that we've imposed on you called Jim Crow. And the same thing, Brown versus Board, Board of uh, Segregation. A lot of people don't know that our schools are more segregated today than they were in the mid-1960s. And they're more segregated today because of the way that white people have set things up. Because it was never about being equal with black people or equitable. Mm-hmm. It was always about separation. And now the uh, Democratic Party wants to do all this um, criminal reforming. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you get rid of felonies, you're going to get rid of the felonies probably of a lot of, you know, younger black people who are caught up in the system due to yep. a minor drug offense. And they'll have the right to vote. And exactly. guess what? If they have the right to vote, they're probably going to vote for the people who <laughs> freedom. I, yeah. Makes perfect sense. Exactly. It's all back to interest convergence. Mm-hmm. It makes sense for us to free you because then you'll vote for us and you'll keep the white people in power. Yeah. So as explained above, when black and brown people's white counterparts see a benefit in extending civil rights to all, they jump at the chance. However, in times when it's not perceived as beneficial to support marginalized parts of the community, white individuals will ignore their needs and demands. And though interest convergence specifically applies to matters of race, many of the same themes can be found in other aspects of the queer community, such as the way transgender and gender nonconforming individuals were virtually ignored by mainstream LGBTQ organizations until the early 2000s. And even then, it wasn't until several independent studies were made by trans and non-binary people supporting their claims that gender counterparts saw an opportunity to gain state and federal funding. Thus, the interests converged as it now became profitable for cisgender LGB people to support the trans and GNC gender nonconforming community. In the social justice world, there have always been people crusading for their rights and people crusading for everyone's rights. Barbara Smith is a woman who has always fought for equal and and equitable rights for all people. And that's why she walked away from the mainstream LGBTQ movement. In in 1987, she is one of only eight speakers to address the over one million queer people who marched on Washington. She had been among the very first 100,000 LGBT marchers at the state capitol in 1979. Yet by the mid-90s, she saw a group overtaken by by a desire to conform something the queer revolution has never been about. We are the people who defy the laws and standards and socially constructed gender roles. We break the barriers of love and acceptance. We promise an image of a world that could be, but in the 90s, whether through fear, selfishness, or ignorance, um, LGB leaders left the non-conformers behind, and it would be nearly two decades before attention would drift to the so-called others again. But while she left the mainstream movement, she by no means abandoned her queer siblings. In 1999, Barbara and several other activists wrote an open letter to the Millennium March organizers. It was titled, Will People of Color Pay the Price? and detailed the abuse and willful blindness towards the needs of queer minority groups. Yet the letter went unheard, and that was the final march on Washington that Barbara Smith attended. Instead, she poured her energy into multi-issue organizing, which she continues to pursue to this day. She founded the website Stop Islamophobia several years ago and published a 40-year work in 2014 titled Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. Over the years, she's won many awards, including the Stonewall Award in 1994 and was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. She's also had several pieces of her work archived, and she is one of the most sought-after literary teachers in the country. Yet at the heart of it all, her passion remains for freedom and justice for all. 
Just, just last year, she wrote a scathing piece in the New York Times. Staying true to the message she's preached over 55 years of activism, Barbara concluded her article with, the, with these words. Gaining rights for some while ignoring the violations and suffering of others does not lead to justice. At best, it results in privilege. It's an excellent way to sum it all up, and it's true. It is. You know, and you got to stay committed to those multi-issues. Like you've got to, it's, it's freedom and justice for all. Okay. If it's not everybody, then we're not doing it. Right. It's just fucking how it is. You're just oppressing another group even further. Yeah. We're not leaving a race behind. We're not leaving a religion behind. We're not leaving disabled people behind. We talk about marriage equality. What about the marriage equality for people with disabilities? Like what are we doing to make sure that everybody is equal and equi- equitable justice? Absolutely. Yeah. So your recommended resource is the book Homegirls, a Black feminist anthology or watch one of barbara smith's many lectures on youtube we linked one in our page titled god don't like ugly and she's not too stuck on pretty either and most importantly make sure you are supporting organizations that promote and focus on the needs of all people this means they not only recognize that marginalized individuals have more needs but they are actively trying to meet those needs be aware and stay committed to justice for all so stay queer don't get a lobotomy. We love you, our little allied hookers. And our little succulent saphis. And our prude homocrats. Proud homocrats. Uh, have yourself a sodomy circus and um, be aware of those lesbian undercurrents. Because they're everywhere. They're, the queer undercurrents are everywhere. And if you haven't uh, joined the Queerston family on Patreon mm-hmm. yet, you should give it a look. Even for just $3 a month, you get to hear more of us. You hear more of us and you support the queer community because that goes into our queer mentorship program where we help young people who are transitioning um, out of uh, toxic environments. So you're doing good and you're supporting us and you get to hear all of our thoughts on everything more than you do already. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story. Like what you heard? Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory. And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. See you next week. Bye. Bye.